Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Some of my favorite reads come to me through trusted reader friends who say, I've got one for you, you have got to read this. And that is how today happened. Not only did I love the book, but I loved the author's story behind the book because I feel like it's one of those that a lot of us, not 30-year-olds, not 40-year-olds, unpublished writers will relate to. Shelley Reed's debut novel, Go is a River, came out this past February by Spiegel and Grau to instant international bestseller success. It is a coming-of-age novel, it's an environmental novel, it's sort of a 20th century World War II Vietnam civil rights novel. It's a novel about displacement and reclamation. It's also an incredible apprenticeship on peach farming and a really incredible apprenticeship for us on excellent writing. Its publication backstory is almost as great as the story itself. So we're gonna get a chance hopefully to talk about all of it. Shelley Reed is a fifth generation Coloradan who lives with her family on the Elk Mountains on the Western slope of Colorado. She was a senior lecturer at Western Colorado University for nearly three decades, where she taught writing, literature, environmental studies and honors, and was a founder of the environmental and sustainability major and a support program for first generation and at-risk students. Shelley holds degrees in writing and literary studies from the University of Denver and Temple University's graduate program in creative writing. She's also a regular contributor to Crested Butte magazine and Gunnison Valley Journal. But now in her mid-50s, she has never before published a novel, so I am so excited to talk about this one. In addition to talking about Shelley's great publication backstory and the, the story behind the novel, we're going to talk a lot of craft. How to weave in backstory using effective metaphor and simile and symbolism, writing amazing prologues, epistolary writing, tackling different subjects, all of this, so much more. Before I bring her on, some exciting news if you haven't heard yet. Barbara and I started an affiliate page on bookshop.org where you can buy all of these books, all the books from our guests, as well as books that Barbara and I both recommend. Shelley's book is up and available there at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. You can find it there. All of those proceeds go to help independent bookstores and help the show out a little bit. So if you're interested in purchasing Shelley's book or other books, they are up there on bookshop.org. Also a reminder to visit our Patreon page. We are offering tips and tricks to writers. If the show has boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice, look for us there, patreon.com slash writers on writing. On with the show. Shelley Reed, welcome. Wow, what a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. And I am so thrilled to be here. So as I alluded to in the introduction, I'm almost as attracted to your story as a writer as I am to this novel itself. So <laughs> as I read about you, I can feel some subtle parallels between your coming of age as a novelist and Victoria, our protagonist in the novel, and her coming of age as a woman. And so I thought maybe we could just start there with you and this perhaps, I don't know, ambivalence or uncertainty you had about being a novelist and, and how you found yourself where you are today. Yeah, yeah, that is a wonderful place to begin because my awareness of 
those parallels are are only sort of evolving over time. I don't know that I set out to create the character of Victoria Nash to be a ref, you know a conscious reflection of myself and my journey, but I do believe that part of the the benefit I think of that this novel actually took me many years to write and get into the world is that the initial ideas that I had about this young woman and the story that I wanted to tell because I by necessity which will tell you sort of why but I had to chip away at it little by little over a number of years I went through a lot of very challenging experiences in my life during those years. And so I became a deeper and richer human being for that journey. And Victoria's story became deeper and richer as well, um, because a lot of what I learned uh, from those challenges in my life, I poured into this novel with my heart and soul. And so in a lot of ways, in an almost unintentional way, Victoria became reflective of what I learned, what I pulled uh, most meaningfully from the difficult experiences in my life. And I was so grateful to be able to have that character to express some of the things that I learned and pondered and wondered about during that time in my life. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking as I was reading this, when you write a book over a period of a decade or, or you know, uh, maybe even more, what happens to you would affect what happens to them. And it sounds like that's exactly what happens. So that would necessitate just constant rewriting as as your character is kind of evolving and shifting under your feet. And so I, I was kind of wondering at what point you got a, a full handle on her where you're like, okay, you know, we're going to fix this in time. You know, it's so interesting. I, I often ponder, you know, where does in our creative imagination as writers, where does a character even come from? Like what is it about our imagination and the way in which we ponder the world that these beings start forming in our minds and in our hearts and they become so real for us. Victoria Nash was very much that for me. I love her. <laughs> I always loved her. I loved her from the very beginning and I wondered about her. And I know that I set out initially through her character to try to, you know, dig in to the heart of what it means to be a woman in the world in some way. I didn't know what form, what thematic concerns, what trajectory that was going to take when I started the novel. And so I think that one of the things I learned about the characters that we create is that you do need to sort of let them develop a life of their own. You do need to let them kind of become who they're going to become. And yes, of course, that's going to be in relation or be in the context of your own life and your own development of your own wisdom and experience. But Victoria had to develop for me over a number of years. And I think the thing I did right with her is that I just let her do that. I let her decide where her story was going to go. And I let her decide who she was going to become. I read somewhere that teaching sort of overtook you. And I, I was wondering if it was a matter of like deferring your own dreams in favor of your students' dreams of not publishing a novel length piece earlier, or if it was just not thinking of yourself as a novelist and thinking of yourself more as a short story writer. Tell me a little bit about separate and apart from Victoria's story, kind of your own relationship with writing before she came to you. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, my own writing journey is is a long one and I I hope that it serves as some level of inspiration or at least um perspective for your listeners because I think there is quite a bit of pressure expectation on a writing life should look like this or should progress in this way. My writing life progressed in a rather conventional way at first and then a rather unconventional way after. And I ultimately think that it evolved just perfectly for me. So, you know, I I do hope that me telling my story helps writers out there understand that we're all on our own journeys and it will it will evolve for you as a writer just as it should. For me, I knew I wanted to be a writer as a child. I loved writing stories and poems. And I looked at the world in a very narrative way. And my mom still, bless her, has boxes and boxes of my short stories and poems that I wrote when I was a kid. I had no question in my mind that that's what I was going to do with my life. So I started out at the University of Denver as a literary studies and creative writing major, and then picked up a double major in journalism as well, went on directly as a young woman to Temple University's graduate program in creative writing. So I was well on my way. And uh, while I was at Temple, though, I was awarded a teaching fellowship, and I really fell in love with teaching. And it was, yeah, as you say, which one had to take primacy, I ended up being a teacher for almost 30 years. So certainly in my world, I allowed being a teacher to become my main focus. And along the way, I also became a mom. And, you know, I I think that also a lot of writers out there can empathize with the idea that there's only so many hours in the day. I needed to have a full-time job. I loved being a teacher. I loved being a mom and pouring my heart and soul and energies into my students and my kids. And I, there are only so many hours in the day. And so for me, my writing started, oh, you know, being bumped lower and lower and lower on my priority list. I don't think that was a great idea for my spirit to let that happen. And yet when I look back on it, I did the best I could. I, I stepped up to every day the very best that I could. And some days that included a little bit of writing, but generally it didn't. And yet that creative spirit inside of me and that writerly self inside of me would not be quieted. And along the way, sometime in that journey, the character of Victoria Nash started forming in my mind. And honestly, I owe her a lot because the more that I fell in love with her and the more I started imagining her story, she is what turned me back toward my writing life in a way that that story just sort of insisted on being told whether I had time to tell it or not. I did write for magazines and some short fiction and some poetry here and there along the way, but never a focused project like this novel ended up being. And as you mentioned, I started off writing more short fiction and creative nonfiction. I'm not even sure I ever imagined myself as a novelist, but it was Victoria and Victoria's story that really turned me that direction. And it's been life-changing in, oh gosh, every way. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you call it unconventional, but I'll bet it's a more conventional story than everybody has their own unique yeah. path. And that's great. Yeah. 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 I, I think that's true. And I think it's important to say that, you know, that, hey, yeah, that's that's very true. I think that it's an unconventional path, but maybe it's far more common than we know. What I worry is that along the way, a lot of writers simply give up on their writing. And so I hope that my journey uh, reminds people that please do not give up on your writing. I didn't. And I'm so grateful that I didn't. And I know that it's very easy to do so in a busy life. 
so as I mentioned, this is one of those books brought to me by a friend who said, you've got to read this, the writing. And she said, the writing, the writing. And I'm excited to talk about the writing. We should start with the larger story. We've sort of been alluding to it. But although the story took place like 60, 75 years ago, some of the themes in here might resonate with readers stronger today than I think they would have 10 or 20 years ago. So I'm excited to talk about all that. And maybe we can just kind of lay the foundation for the book a little bit better and take us into Iola and and take us into who Victoria is and lay the groundwork and then we can jump off from there. So the novel is the story of, as I said, a young woman named Victoria Nash. She's growing up along the banks of the wild Gunnison River on the western slope of the Colorado Rockies, which is my homeland where I live and have for for my entire adult life and also was here much of my childhood. So it's a landscape that I love and admire deeply. Victoria's story is a fictional story with fictional characters, but it's set against the backdrop of an actual little known sort of piece of Colorado history, which is our largest reservoir here in Colorado is called Blue Mesa Reservoir. And it's a beautiful reservoir. It it extends 24 miles down uh, the end of the Gunnison Valley. And it's really a beautiful and extraordinarily and highly valued reservoir here in our state. What a lot of people don't know is at the bottom of that reservoir are three abandoned towns that were thriving ranch and farming communities before they were evacuated, flooded, and drowned in order to create that reservoir. And because I spent a lot of time in the Gunnison Valley when I was a child, swimming in Blue Mesa Reservoir even, and I knew that there were towns at the bottom of that lake, I found that incredibly haunting. And I I say that it's captured my imagination since I was quite young. So as my character, Victoria, started evolving, and I knew more clearly that her journey was going to be about place and about displacement, as well as about discovering the depths of one's strength and and strength and resilience. I chose to set her story in the town of Iola, which is one of the towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa Reservoir. And from there, (laughs) the story sort of evolved into the various challenges and difficulties that Victoria had to then face as a result of her deep connection to place and the forced displacement. We can talk about it, but I also wanted to bring in to the degree that I am able, the Indigenous experience um, on some level, because clearly well before the predominantly white ranchers and farmers of Iola were displaced for Blue Mesa Reservoir was the displacement of the Indigenous people who had inhabited that same area for over 500 years. And so for me, this beautiful lake is actually the symbol of layers of displacement. And so I wanted to pour all of that into my book, as well as an investigation on what it was like to be a young woman in rural Colorado in 1948 and the extraordinary limitations that put on her understanding of self and her own possibilities. Do you remember going back 10 or 12 years when this started was it her that came to you? I know it was this this underwater town buried at yeah. the, the bottom, but did they come to you together? Or uh, tell me about like first meeting her in your in your brain. 
Yeah. You know, I'm really grateful for this particular memory of exactly where this novel began for me, because over the span of that 12 years, a lot of it becomes a little bit of a blur in terms of how did I actually finish this book? <laughs> but the the nugget of insight, the moment that this began actually is crystal clear in my mind, and it actually ended up in the book. It's, it's uh, around page sort of 120 for anybody who reads it. I, like I said, I live here in the Gunnison Valley. This absolutely stunningly beautiful area of Colorado. I live every day of my life at about 9,000 feet elevation surrounded by wilderness. And I think out my window, there's 20 some mountain peaks that I can count. And I spend a lot of time in that wilderness. And so I was out camping by myself one evening, as I am known to do. I would tell my family sometimes, mom is suffering from excessive domesticity. I'm going camping. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, a little Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own. I often called my journeys out into the wilderness a tent of one's own. I would seek out my tent of one's own and I would often do a lot of writing when I was out there, just mostly in my journals. But I was sitting in a beautiful alpine meadow one evening and just watching the sunset and this mother deer comes shuffling out of the foliage followed by one lovely little fawn and then a second fawn who was much smaller and weaker than the first. And I looked into that mother deer's eyes, these big brown eyes, and my whole being just connected with her mother to mother, thinking, my God, how are you going to keep both of those babies alive when one was so much, so clearly so much more fragile than the other? You know, I had two children, she had two children. There was just a a real connection in that moment. And it was certainly not unusual to see deer and an abundance of wildlife when I'm out in the backcountry. But there was something really unique about this moment. And so the deer moved on, to the river and I grabbed my journal and I I wrote it all down. And it was that moment that some nugget of this story began forming in my mind about that vulnerability of, of being a woman in the world, the vulnerability of motherhood, the vulnerability of loving. And it was the next morning, actually, I just sort of threw on a backpack and I was bushwhacking up this mountain. I was just climbing a mountain and I was thinking about that moment. And suddenly I felt that I was viewing that moment through the lens of someone who was not me. I recognized it because I had developed characters before. I recognized it at that moment as the birth of a character. It was someone else observing those deer and having those deeper questions about the vulnerability of being a woman in the world. And I didn't know who she was at the moment, but eventually I figured out it was Victoria Nash. And that is exactly when that novel was born. And and I'm really grateful for that moment because it it included a lot of things that I had been pondering and sort of been percolating in my in my heart for a long time, and I needed somewhere to put those ideas. And so I just started sketching them out. I didn't know where the story was going, who this person was. I certainly never imagined it was going to be a novel. But then, as I said, once I got to know her better, then I placed her in the setting of Iola. Because I am a fifth generation Coloradoan and I am so connected to landscape and place, I feel like the pain of displacement is a special kind of pain, a pain that I have a lot of empathy and sadness for. And so I think that when I was delving into Victoria's vulnerabilities, this idea of displacement also started emerging. So it was definitely Victoria first, place second, and then I just sort of let it evolve from there. Yeah. And the thing about that sounds like it would bring to you a lot of the 
like voice sounds very difficult for me to find a character's voice, but it sounds like her voice and this idea of it being in first person might've been there from the beginning. And I feel like for novelists, that's one of the really tricky parts is finding a character's voice and deciding point of view. Is it going to be first or third and shifting? I don't know if it's the case, but it sounds like it might be the case that all of those things kind of arrive together. Yes. Oh, and I'm so grateful for that. I didn't realize how grateful I am for that until recently where I am actually on the journey of trying to write a second novel. And the thing I've been struggling with most actually is is voice and point of view. Whereas for Go as a River, it was instant for me. I knew it was going to be, the majority of the book was going to be in Victoria Nash's first person point of view. I was able to get into her voice very naturally and I even started thinking in that voice and mm-hmm. seeing the world through that lens. And I'm so grateful that that felt so authentic to the development of the narrative that I'd never even questioned it. And uh, like I said, and like you're saying, it is it can be one of the most difficult choices mm-hmm. that a novelist has. And I'm experiencing that now. But with Go as a River, it just felt so correct that I didn't question it. I was just off with it. It also gives you a lot of opportunity to explore other characters who might otherwise be tricky to write about. And you alluded to this a little earlier. There's an indigenous man who appears at the beginning of the novel. And in the last couple of years, we've had all of these conversations about who has the authority and the right to tell whose story. But when you do that through the lens of Victoria, it removes, I think, you can talk to this, it, it would remove a lot of those concerns, I would think, because you are viewing him through her perspective. But talk a little bit about discovering, there's a uh, wonderful cast of some wonderful, some not so wonderful men (laughs) in this story. And tell me a little bit about discovering some of those men and who may have given you fits and who came really easily to Mm -hmm. you. Uh, yeah, well, and I, I would like to speak first about Wilson Moon, the the young indigenous character. Victoria Nash and Wilson Moon meet literally on the first lines of the book. And uh, when we talk about, you know, characters that come easy, characters that come difficult, I knew that, uh, you know, I certainly couldn't tell a story about displacement in the American West without including, like I said, in some level, the indigenous experience. And so I brought in the character of Wilson Moon. He was hands down the hardest part of this book for me to write because I did want to do it as respectfully as possible. It felt completely wrong to leave a character like Wilson Moon out, and yet it was very tricky to include a character like Wilson Moon. And I do believe that is a a really fascinating larger conversation that writers, um, as you say, have been involved in in the last several years. And I think a conversation that needs to continue about this idea of who has the right to tell whose story, because there are so many complexities involved in that conversation. There are no easy answers to that conversation. And I hope that writers continue to have it. But I do know that at the core of however we represent needs to be a deep respect and an awareness, a historical awareness And so I tried to bring in Wilson Moon's character in a way of he and Victoria, to me, are two parallel figures of displacement. 
what was possible. Victoria Nash at the beginning of the book is deeply rooted in place. Wilson Moon for me is uh, sort of a symbol of what happens after generational, generational displacement. He becomes essentially a, a child of nowhere, which is so deeply ironic where the indigenous people of the Gunnison Valley had been so deeply rooted to place far beyond anything that I think I would ever be able to comprehend. So the painful irony that he's basically he's a drifter and he's sort of a placeless character where Victoria is so rooted in place. I wanted to explore through those two characters, what was possible for each of them. And so, yes, as you say, I chose to tell Wilson Moon's story in a very limited way and only through Victoria's lens. And that was the way in which I felt as a white writer that I could bring that story in. She's a relatively naive character. She's shy. She doesn't ask a lot of questions. And so I purposefully leave a lot of Wilson Moon's story untold. So yeah, he, he was very difficult. I adore him. I, I adore Wilson Moon. I also did not want to shy away from the horrors of racism and the horrors of the inherited biases that would have dominated perspective at that time and certainly still are enormous and painful aspect of our modern society. I, I did not want to shy away from the horrific legacy of racism. And so I did roll that into the book. So yeah, Wilson Moon was difficult for me to write. Um, Seth, an uh, openly racist character in the novel, was difficult for me to write. What I wanted to do with the character of Seth, he's a young man who carries a lot of anger, a lot of grief, and a lot of loss, and very, very little self-awareness. And I did want to write through the character of Seth, kind of investigate this question of how is prejudice perpetuated? How is just deep hatred for an, an other or fear of an other. How is that perpetuated, especially in a, a young person's mind and heart? And uh, for Seth, I wanted him to be the deeply confused, deeply angry young man who carries so much complexity of emotions in his being, but has no access to understand how to process or, or or comprehend those emotions. And so he just lashes out to the most vulnerable via hate. And I fear that that is where a lot of racism comes from. And so, yeah, you know, there's the, some of the other men, the, the father, I tried to develop him very in a nuanced way. I come from a long line of farmers and ranchers here in Colorado. I am surrounded by the ranching community here in the Gunnison Valley. I know these people as deeply humble um, relatively stoic, hardworking individuals. And I've also known a lot of men in my life that came sort of came from that culture who love, but don't necessarily have access to expressing those emotions. And so the father in this book, it is certainly not true for my own dad, <laughs> but the father in this book, he loves his daughter. He just doesn't know how. And I actually have a lot of compassion for that. So the, the stoic, um, the stoic rancher, father was another character that I wanted to bring layers to and not stereotype in any way. So I guess those are some of the men in the book. Later, we meet a young man named Lucas. The book runs from, um, opens in 1948, although there are flashbacks to earlier, opens in 1948 
it carries us to 1971. And so we have a young man named Lucas uh, toward the end of the book, who is a very complicated young man who takes us into the Vietnam era. And I also tried to <laughs> approach Lucas's character with a lot of respect for his complexity and his vulnerabilities around not fully being able to process his own understanding of his emotional life. I try in all of my characters to acknowledge, you know, male and female, to acknowledge how damn difficult it is to be a human being and show those layers of complexity. So I hope that I've done that well with these characters and go as a river. Yeah, I mean, that's really one of the things that I marveled at again and again is how you rendered some pretty complex grief and inner lives. And like you say, Seth is pretty openly racist, but we we get to see, you know, he's not just a bad person, although we see him through Victoria's lens who who does yeah. think he's a pretty bad person but you you render them with empathy and sensitivity and multi-dimension even though you're locked in this first person point of view from Victoria's perspective and that just <laughs> what a lesson in writing that was oh um, well thank you that I'm so grateful for that because you know we, we can talk about drafting but man yeah over and over I'm I'm a I'm a major reviser. I'm super open to that in uh, my writing and getting those characters tweaked just right was an extraordinary part of this of this journey, you know, but I, I think that even through Victoria's lens, she was conflicted. Seth is her brother. Uh, she loves him. And so, you know, there is that complexity within Seth's own character, but there's also that complexity within the way in which Victoria views and feels about Seth or her mother or her father or a variety of different things. She's very naive. She's just figuring out the world. She's figuring out the complexity of of other humans and how that then reflects back on the complexity of our own emotions toward those humans. And I really wanted to explore that because that's a difficult, difficult thing. You know, human beings are always human in relation. We are human to in relation to others. And we really have no choice about that. And our emotions can be so complex as we try to figure out uh, our relationships with the people in our lives. And I, I really wanted that to be a center point of Victoria's development, part of her journey from tremendous naivete to a certain sense of herself and her relationship to the world. Later, I bring in a character named Zelda, and uh, I say that she really was uh, Victoria's first f- actual friend in the world, well into Victoria's life. Victoria's friends were the trees and the natural world and the land. I understand that. I feel much more comfortable <laughs> mm-hmm. with my relationship with the natural world than I do necessarily with human beings. And so Victoria gathered a lot of strength in her relationship with the land, but she eventually had to turn toward a relationship with other human beings beyond Wilson Moon. And and that was always part of the trajectory that I wanted to investigate in her journey. And the thing to remember is that as we're having sort of these higher level philosophical conversations about bigger themes of friendship and nature, it's all always, always grounded in scene to make these explorations very specific. So there's like, there's a scene in the book where Victoria gets her period for the first time and she's surrounded by men. Her mother is gone. She has nobody to kind of instruct her. And so she has this just incredibly awkward 
sad, tender, weird scene with her dad. And it shows so much, but always, always going back to being set in scene and not these, like we say, we can have these lofty philosophical conversations, but it's always grounded in specific moments. And uh, Uh, I'm actually really grateful that you said that because I I think that um, my philosophical mind plays with all of these thematic concerns. And I I think one of the reasons that people have really found Go as a River, uh, especially say in in book clubs or in, you know, literary conversation circles, interesting to talk about it. There are these layers of thematic concerns, and that was very purposeful on my part. But as a writer and as a writer, you know, talking with you and talking with other writers, I am so grateful that you reminded me to say that it is about scene. It is about story. The thematic concerns, they never can come across as preachy or heavy handed. They cannot come across as dominant in my mind. Story is always what, for me at least, needs to take primacy. And a lot of my revision process were about those scenes, like the scene that you mentioned uh, with Victoria and her father. I, I wanted to bring each scene into clarity for the reader with as little language and as little um, imagery, I guess, as as possible, just kind of get to the heart of the matter in each scene. And it's the story I would ask myself in the revisions, any given moment, any given observation, any given description, any given thematic concern, I would ask myself, does this serve Victoria's story? And if my answer was yes, it could stay. If my answer was no, it had to go, even if it was really painful to let go of things. I'll I'll tell your readers, I mean, your listeners, since you're all writers, I took this novel from, oh gosh, I want to say this correctly, a hundred and... 125,000 words to 95,000 words Mm, (laughs) at some point in in the journey, you know, and there were a lot of painful cuts in that, not because anybody told me to. I mean, I can talk about my wonderful editor, Cindy Spiegel, and where she sort of guided me once my novel finally landed in her hands. But I had lived with this novel and had been revising it and, um, and getting clarity on the individual scenes for years before it landed with my wonderful editor. Part of that chopping down from saying too much to saying just the right amount was was really a such a, a lesson to me. It was a learning experience of my life of how to write a novel, what stays and what goes. And as you're saying, it's all about scene. It's all about story. We'll be back with more from Shelley Reed and Go as a River in just a moment. Another quick reminder that you can buy Shelley's book on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. You can visit bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Shelley's book is up there along with other past guest books and books that Barbara and I both recommend that you check out. You can look at our shop there. If you don't see what you're looking for, you can always drop us a note and we can add it up there. Also another reminder to check out our Patreon page as well, patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Shelley Reed talking about Go is a River. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Tell me when the story sort of emerged, because you're doing all this character work, you're understanding who Victoria is, you're understanding the place, 
And at what point do you understand we're starting in 1948, we're extending to 1971, and this is sort of the arc that we can start dropping scenes into? Because I feel like, especially since you said, you know, I never saw myself as a novelist, that's the hard part of being a novelist as opposed to a short story writer, is this vast landscape of time. Yeah. um, (laughs) So I'm wondering when that started to settle down and settle into a place where you're like, okay, enough character. I also have to plot this out and understand the the whole arc of what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. I I had no idea how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Me neither. (laughs) Um, And so I think the, the, the way that that then manifested for me was that I wrote this book in an absolutely wacky, nonlinear sort of way. I'm glad, again, that you mentioned scenes because that is entirely how I wrote the book. So I was thinking about it all the time, regardless of what I was doing. I'd be, you know, I have a very long, twisty mountain drive down to my university every morning. And I really should have been thinking about what I was teaching that day. But I often was thinking about this, about (laughs) Victoria, what was going to happen. And so I, you know, I literally grab like a rip a student essay out of my briefcase and jot some crazy notes on the back. And then I'd get to my office and be like, what the heck does that even say? It was a really wacky, uh, almost post-it note version of writing a novel. Regardless of what I was doing, something idea would come to me and I would jot it down. And uh, it might be something that ended up on page 200. And then the next minute I, or the day later, or a week later, I'd think of something that ended up on page 15. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I would not recommend this as process to anyone. However, I guess it does go back to the context of, you know, get it done however you possibly can. So maybe if this is the only way that somebody can get a novel put together, then go ahead and go for it. But I hope that my writing process for my next novel is far more sane than this one. I ended up with a with a folder of a crazy assortment of little post-it notes and scraps of papers and napkins and whatever with so many different ideas. And then I transferred it to handwritten spiral-bound notebooks, just ideas here and there. So I at least got, my, got myself somewhat organized. And then I realized, oh my goodness, I think this is a novel. I never did plot it out. I never did. I, well, I guess I should say I didn't until the very final few drafts, just to make sure I I sketched out, you know, all the boxes and whatnot, just to make sure that there was a, a solid logic to everything. Because I think at that point, I maybe didn't trust my own, I I was so close to it, I needed to pull back and get a little bit of distance and make sure that the way in which I pieced it together in such a crazy way actually did make sense. But it was a massive puzzle that I ended up having to put together. And mostly based on scenes. And, you know, it, it in the end, it worked, but I think it was much more laborious than it needed to be because I did it in that way. I'm hoping, I don't know that I'm the kind of writer who sits down and starts from the beginning and then writes toward the end. I can't imagine that's how my next novel is going to come together, but I hope it it does so a little bit more <laughs> than Go as a River did. The time frame was a little bit set by the choice of placing Victoria Nash in Iola, Colorado, because the flooding, the evacuation of Iola began in the early 1960s and the actual dam was completed in 1965 and the waters, you know, the choked river started rising. 
the river, you know, the the it once was a wild river forced to be a lake, I say in my book. And that forcing started in 1965 and it was fully a lake by 1968. And so that was a real time period that I was working with that I had to then plot around. And I had to do a lot of research about the creation of Blue Mesa Reservoir um, just to make sure that I had those particulars right. And so that dictated some of the time period. An original draft that I had took it far longer, extended it out deeper into Victoria's old age, but it required a huge gap of time in the middle. And at some point I realized that I needed to I needed to close up that gap and keep her experiences a little bit more immediate. I don't know why I figured that out, but I did. And and that was kind of toward the end. So I think it is just a constant checking in with oneself as a writer, checking in with the narrative and how it wants to evolve and keep asking the question of, does this still work? Is this still contributing meaningfully to the story? Is this still the time frame that I need to tell the story? And if not, be really, really willing to make the changes that are necessary. Well, it strikes me as you're talking that the advantage of doing it the way you did it, laborious as <laughs> laborious as it sounds, <laughs> um, is that it gives the reader the experience that like life, you don't know what's going to happen. So there were certain things in the novel that would happen. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> Me too. I did not see that coming. And that is how life is. And that is what made the novel so pleasurable was that it simulated life instead of simulated stories. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, whereas if you would have outlined it, I feel like readers can tell, you know, they can tell you what's coming next because our brains kind of work in a story pattern. But if you let your brain work in this subconscious way that you did, we're all kind of surprised along the journey. I don't know oh. if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I love that. I'm so grateful to hear that. I knew that I wanted, or maybe it became clear as I went along, I wanted Victoria's journey and her story to be a two steps forward, one step back trajectory, because I, I do feel that's how we grow. I, I worry, I don't worry, but I observe that a lot of narratives about growth often are oriented around one or two major challenges in one's life. And we overcome that character overcomes that challenge. And then suddenly they're wiser and they're so strong. And that has just not been my experience in my own life or in the um, humans that I observe around me. I sort of feel like life is a long and complicated journey. Nobody gets out without having to experience deep grief. Nobody gets out without having to experience, without having to bear the seemingly unbearable, without having to completely change your trajectory of what you thought was going to happen because something very unexpected happens instead. This is what it means to be human. And we step up to that, I hope, as well as we possibly can in each individual challenge, in each individual circumstance. But it does not mean that when the next smackdown or the next challenge comes our way, that we're going to have the wisdom to bring all of that strength and all of that perspective to the next challenge. I think we try, but we falter. And that's what happens with Victoria. She tries, but she falters. She grows incrementally throughout the course of the novel. But like I said, in a two steps forward, one step back way, because I just I just really feel like that's a more authentic representation of who we are as humans. The other thing that it allowed you 
to do, and I assume this was through the revision process, but we start in 1948, but she's already undergone a lot of loss. And I don't, I don't think it gives too much away to say that her mother, her cousin, and her aunt had been killed in a car accident some period of years, kind of five years before the novel opens. So it requires you to backfill a lot of backstory, not just about that event, but about those relationships and her relationship with her cousin and how her aunt met her uncle, all these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I marveled at your ability to dip into backstory I always think of narratives as like a clothesline and then you dip down on the clothesline, you know, to the to the backstory of the clothes hanging and then you, you have to get back up to the line somehow. <laughs> but you don't want you don't want to spend too much time back there. Or you kind of disorient the reader about what's going on and you lose the thread. But you do have to get all of those relationships and perspective in there. And I wondered if there was anything you could say about that, if that was kind of intuitive or if you had little rules you could follow about, you know. No more than two pages of backstory. Of it. <laughs> well, I'm super glad those that backstory worked for you as a reader because you know you you never know. <laughs> you do you do your best and you follow your intuition as a writer. But it's been really really remarkable to me to have Go as a River been received so well because you know you you kind of don't know while you're in the middle of writing it. I did know that the the various story threads that led into the uh, who we know as Victoria Nash on the first pages of the book when she's 17 years old, she didn't just show up in the world as a 17-year-old. She had backstory, and I felt that it carried enough weight that some of the particulars were important to tell. I, I because of that backstory, I basically frame the novel from uh, I kind of frame it with the with two wars, with World War II and the Vietnam era. I'm very very interested in that era of the way in which society changed so much between World War II and the Vietnam era in a wide variety of ways, but I think especially for women. And so, you know, we have to meet Victoria Nash's mother in flashback, in retrospect, but she is a very proper woman. She is someone who I recognize from ancestors in my own family, somebody who who definitely gets up every single day and does what needs to be done, but with a tremendous concern around, uh, for her, it's uh, her religious upbringing that tells her very strict parameters around what is right and wrong. But regardless of the the religion component to that, what I was trying to evoke in this mother was a woman who was told by her society, there is a proper way to do everything. And you define your, your identity and your success uh, by how proper and how correct you are in the way in which you do things. And that is how she's raising Victoria. And then suddenly she's just gone. And the father does not know how to fill that void with raising the children. Where does that leave Victoria? The only woman in the house the only she's 12 years old when her mother dies she's a the only girl in the house quickly becoming a woman surrounded by men who do not know how to love and how to care for others they only know how to love and care for the peach trees um and so i felt like there were particulars of that story that I wanted to tell who were these people before so much loss and grief changed the, the path of their lives, that those particulars ended up being important to me. But like you said, 
I didn't want to overwrite them. And probably in earlier drafts I did, but then it's part of the revision process for me. I can I can be an overwriter for sure, an <laughs> overdescriber, and you know, and so it's part of my discipline. And that is where my editor at Spiegel and Grouse, Cindy Spiegel, also helped me a lot in the final draft. She was really pointed out any any place where there was still overwriting. I have to keep that in check in myself. Sometimes I look back and think that maybe I I made some passages almost too spare because I was so conscious of going back and getting rid of anything that shouldn't be there. But that's been a real journey for me as a writer and a great lesson of writing this book. Uh, I often say I learned how to write a novel by writing one. <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah. going back to some of those side stories, some of that backstory, and paring it down to only the essentials was one of the biggest challenges that I faced in writing this book. But I I would definitely recommend it to other writers to, to look at backstory with a very critical lens and be disciplined enough, I think, to only say what really needs to be said. I guess, well, early in our conversation, you brought up that test that you kept giving to yourself of it, does it advance the story? Does it serve the story? And if not, it's got to go. And so, yeah, I guess with every single scene, you just keep applying that test of yeah yeah you do you do serving yeah at what point did did cindy enter the picture like how long was the novel when she got it versus how long did it become in the end Mm, i think it was pretty pared down by the time that um spiegel and grau so wonderfully (laughs) signed my book i so you know i said i I uh, I worked on this for, you know, roughly 12 years, but I, I kind of put that in quotation, air quotes, you know, because there were months and at a time I would sometimes open the file on my laptop and see that I hadn't written a word in three and four months at a time, depending on what was going on with my kids and my life. And and so I, I did work on it, for chipped away at it for about 12 years in tw- and I was, you know, a full-time professor. In 2018, I, I took early retirement from, from teaching at my university because I knew that there was no way in hell that this book was going to get finished and in the world if I was going to continue to teach. So, you know, uh, pour so much of my my energies into teaching and and so I actually, sometimes people ask me, you know, what was the catalyst for that change in my life? And I, my answer often is irony. <laughs> I was teaching students, I was teaching creative writing students and cheering them on and telling them, if you want to be a writer, don't let anything stop you. <laughs> Honor the creative <laughs> spirit in your life. You know, I often felt a lot of my role as a teacher was, you know, cheerleader and uh, trying to help students realize their own genius and their own potential in the world. And, and then they'd say, oh, well, Shelly, what have you written lately? And I'm like, oh, I, I don't have time to write. And, you know, that was sort of funny at first, but then over time it became really painful. And I I just couldn't live with that irony anymore. I So I, I took early retirement, which was a, a tremendously frightening thing to do. I think we romanticize in our culture that quit your day job and be an artist. But I think a lot of the writers out there who are listening know that that's actually terrifying. We Financially, it's terrifying. And it was for me as well. My husband, bless him, picked up extra shifts as a flight paramedic. And I, you know, I did a crazy number of odd jobs after I, I left the university just to keep us afloat hoping that I could get an agent and hoping I could get this book in the world. So in 2018, I'm, I'm super grateful. I had my agent, Sandra Bond, signed the book right away. That was the quick part of this journey. I know that's not always true for a lot of the writers out there. So I was very, very grateful for that. 
But then we did a number of revisions together over time, but she shopped this novel out to big, big publishing houses, which was her insistence for almost three years. I got 21 rejections on this novel. I would like everyone to know that. (laughs) I'm proud to say that, actually. Because I meet so many novelists, so many writers who are pouring their heart and soul into their project and get so demoralized by the quote unquote rejections. I like to call them passes or maybe the energies or the moment just wasn't right, which was true for some of those rejections or those passes that I got. Sometimes it had nothing to do with the book. I I was so grateful that I got these long letters, these lovely long letters from the editors who passed saying, oh, we loved this, this, and this. However, you know, we recently published something with similar thematic concerns, or we no longer publish literary fiction, or this thing or that thing. And then others, you know, thought, oh, I love this about the book. However, this isn't working for us. I learned from every one of those rejection letters. I'm so grateful that those editors took the time to write to me. I did some revisions. um, And in the summer of 2021, Sandra uh, sent my book to Cindy Spiegel at Spiegel and Growl, and and she really, really loved, I think, the relationship with the natural world in the book, I think, stood out to her. And we started working together. And I was so, so, so grateful that she agreed to take me on and guide me in whatever wasn't still working with the book. So she helped me to tighten it up a little bit, is what I would say. The story was essentially the same. The ending, not the very, very end, not the final pages of the book, I always knew that's where I wanted to end it. But maybe the final third of the book needed tightening up. I think at the time when I started working with Cindy Spiegel, I was a little bit unsure about the structure. I had a really hard time. I have a a character that comes into into the book later in the book named Inga, who reveals some really essential parts of this story. I had a really hard time structurally knowing where to place that. What Cindy gave me was just the confidence that I could figure it out. And she sort of sent me a way to go figure it out with a deadline, which was very helpful for me. (laughs) And then I came back to her and said, okay, how's this? And thank God she loved it. Yes. And so it was a little bit of restructuring, a little bit of tightening up. But I, what I needed was an editor to come in and just believe in me. And that was Cindy. And I'm forever yes. grateful for that. And how did you meet Sandra? You know, Sandra, her literary agency, Sandra Bond Literary is in Denver. And when I first sat down, like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to send this book out into the world. I am uh, like uh, such a deeply Colorado person. I thought, well, I'll start with the two literary agencies that I know of in Colorado. (laughs) (laughs) I I queried Sandra and one other, and I never heard back from the other one. And um, and Sandra uh, emailed me back right away. I sent her the first 10 pages and she uh, emailed me back right away saying she'd love to see the whole manuscript. And then gratefully, happily, I was able to meet her at a literary festival that my university was hosting. And a good friend of mine who was putting on the Lurie Festival introduced us. And actually, it's kind of a, I'm just going to slide in this kind of funny story. Because at that point, you know, Sandra since then has become a dear friend of mine. And she is a champion of this book. She was not ever going to give up on it. And I really do recommend all the writers out there that you find an agent who loves your book and and really will fight for it because that was Sandra for me. When she came to visit my university, it's Western Colorado University in 
Denison, Colorado, for a program we had back then called Writing in the Rockies. She was there as an agent. She was going to give a presentation for this literary festival. We had already had a little bit of communication, but I don't think she had read my full manuscript just because of time constraints. <laughs> she ended up giving her lecture in a in a lecture hall directly across from my office at the university. And gratefully, she had some technological difficulties. <laughs> and I swooped right in and helped her fix all the technology, not because I'm a technological wizard on any level, but because I've taught in that classroom quite a bit. And I helped her to figure out her technology, which gave us an opportunity to just talk and just get to know each other, you know. Mm-hmm. And she suddenly went from me to she she stopped being the scary agent that I hope and pray will take on my book and I stopped being for her this writer that she'd never met we became two people who kind of struck up a friendship and it was really serendipitous that we were able to meet in that way and then and then yeah the, and then from 2018 on until today she's really been the greatest champ of my book so oh I love that story that's a yeah. great story <laughs> She was just a nice lady, you know. I, you, I think sometimes we we worry and we're afraid of agents and editors and publicists and publishers. And I had no, I had no experience in the publishing world. I had been in the university in the academic setting my entire life. I'm 57 years old. This is my debut novel. I am at total second act huge learning curve, learning an entirely new industry. But what I will say is I have been blown away by how kind and how lovely and how gentle and how encouraging every single person has been that I have encountered on this journey, both here in the United States and all of my novels shockingly being translated into over, I think, 30, it's 32 languages all over the world. And I've dealt with nothing but the most lovely and kind people. So whatever stigma we have about the big, scary publishing world, I, I at least my experience has been to try to put writers at ease that these are really lovely people. And they're just book people, just like your book people as well. <laughs> right. Well, and it's a reflection of the novel itself. The novel is such a kind, empathetic, gentle, full of nature, full of, I don't know, nurturing. <laughs> and so it's it's not surprising that that would be reflected back at you from, from oh. your readership, I think. I mean, oh, thank you. Thank you. And yeah, the readers, oh my gosh. Yeah, one of the greatest compliments I, I got early on was from Mitchell Kaplan, who many of you know, who owns books and books in Miami, Florida, and just sort of an icon in the book selling world. He was a lovely man. But what he told me he loved most about my book was how was the empathy in it, the compassion in it for for how hard it is to be a human. That he picked up on that right away, and that's what connected. And I was so grateful for that perspective because that is very true to who I am in the world. And I was so happy that that came through. And my readers. I've basically been on a solid book tour since the end of February, and I've had 60-some events here in the United States and in, in Europe. And over and over and over again, the thing that has moved me the most is when a reader comes up to me at a book event, puts their hand, put, puts a hand on their heart and says, your book, your novel touched my heart. That is my biggest dream that I could ever have as a writer. And this novel came from a very authentic place inside of my own heart. And the fact that it is touching other hearts is the absolute <laughs> dream come true. What else is there? Really? What else is there? Yeah. Right. yeah. 
Well, there is so much to talk about and so much to learn from this. So I will just tell our listeners to pick it up and (laughs) spend a lot of time with this delicious prologue that is unbelievable. Have you ever read Ron Rash? I had to ask you this because he has a short story called, I think it's called Not Waving But Drowning. And it's the first time I encountered these these cities underwater that this is in the Appalachia area. But same thing. And and it was this image of these people at the bottom of this lake who were waving up at this boater and, you know, this city had been sunk. And it is, it just captivates your imagination, that that image of these underwater towns that I I just wrote that down. I know I've never read Ron Rash, but I I know I'm I'm very excited to read that. I I will say that a lot of my events, a lot of people have come up to me and said, you know, a similar thing happened to my ancestors or a similar thing happened to a town in my valley. You know, I've I've heard that story now all over the world. And that type of displacement, I think, is um, for for water projects, for reservoirs, particularly in the American West, but but I think everywhere, that erasure, essentially, erasing a community, erasing a town, that that pain is far more widespread. It's a more common story than I ever knew. Well, the way you describe it in the prologue is something for writers to study. It's the imagery is amazing. And you do so much in that prologue to set up the story. So I, I encourage people to go there and look at that and then spend so much time with your metaphor and simile. I don't know if your notebook is just filled with amazing metaphors and similes, but <laughs> you've got so many original ones. And of course, the lovely symbolism of of peaches and, and the river. And, you know, yeah. it's just it's dripping with writerly lessons. So in addition to <laughs> loving the story, story. It's just dripping with writerly lessons. So I hope oh, people do thank that. Thank you for that. The teacher in me is um, thrilled to hear that, honestly, because I do, I do miss being able to, I mean, I teach a little bit here and there, but I, I hope my novel can can help writers along the way. I'm a big believer. I'm a huge reader. I always have been. I've studied literature my entire life, and there are many, many ways to read, but some of the most valuable ways of reading is to read as a writer and really study study what any writer lays down, what works, you know, and what doesn't work and what resonates in your own heart as a, as a writer. Reading as a writer has really been incredibly formative for me. So if my book can contribute in that way, that's really meaningful. Yeah, me too. And that's, that's really through the lens through which I've read this book kind of the second time I listened to it, which is also pleasurable. Your, your audio reader is lovely. So I got the pleasure of, you know, just experiencing it and then going back to the, the physical manuscript and just studying how you did a lot of these, like I say, backstory foreshadowing metaphor simile. There's there's no greater way to teach somebody how to write than to do it and show them how you do it. So <laughs> well, thank you. I think thank that's great. I, think yeah, that's great. I really do. I really do. And, you know, the poetry of the language mattered a lot to me as I was writing this book. And that's, again, where I had to use a lot of discipline and not overwrite. So every, I will say, for those of you who, who are interested in craft and I, I crafted every single sentence in this book very intentionally. 
And that is not the fastest way to write a book. But for me, it was something that really mattered. And uh, I'm a great lover of poetry and carefully chosen language. And I really tried to apply that to this novel. So yeah, you can absolutely tell. Are there things we should have talked about that we didn't? Other advice? <laughs> did we did we get it all in there? I'm sure we got it oh, all I, in there. <laughs> I, could, I could literally talk to you all day. So I'm me not too. a good judge of that. But no, I think I think that are, those are the main things, you know, and the the whole concept of being able to go as a river, that metaphor, that extended metaphor throughout the course of the book, it really is Victoria's journey, learning what does that mean. But it's been an interesting part of my own journey. You know, the idea that rivers find a way to move forward, you know, against obstacle up and down and around, they carve new banks when necessary. Rivers find a way to move forward. I've spent my life studying wild rivers and admiring that in them and gathering my own strength. It's actually become quite a metaphor of my own publishing journey as well. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Where I didn't give up and I didn't, I, I I never was demoralized by those passes on this novel. I just felt that that something good was going to happen that I my job was to just tell a really good story and then it was going to you know have a life of its own after that but the go as a river concept informs the book but I but maybe it'll be an inspiration to some of your listeners as well is if we all can find the strength to just go as a river in our life I think things will wind and twist and evolve exactly as they should. I had the exact same thought as I was reading. I'm like, this is a great metaphor for for the book and for life. It's and, and for, for the life. writing life, the writing yeah. journey, the writing yeah. yeah, the writing journey, absolutely, yeah. yes. Shelley Reed, this was such a pleasure. I'm so so glad we got to do this. I am so glad. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for having me. That was Shelley Reed. The book is Go as a River. It's out and available now, published by Spiegel and Grau. In addition to our Patreon page and bookshop.org page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.